Good morning, First Baptist Church of Greg Abels. Um, to those of you watching, I hope you're having a wonderful morning. Uh, it is an honor to be here with you today. Thank you for my little brother and his intro. I know that was hard for him to say good things about me, but uh, I do think the same of him. And so I know that you feel blessed having uh, him and Justin here. Um, we are looking at Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46. It's a life-changing passage for the follower of Christ and for those who are not yet followers of Christ. So please uh, grab your Bibles. Go ahead and open there with me. If you are uh, watching from home right now where it's been difficult to sort of leave the house or uh, if you have uh, been traveling or you're home with a sick child, I just want to thank you really for taking uh, the time to make sure that the preaching of God's word is taken seriously, letting it fill your house. May we be more encouraged in honor of Deuteronomy 6 to not only have it fill our house, but fill the lives of our families, have it written on our walls, on our eyelids, on our hearts when we wake up and when we go down to sleep. So let's not kid ourselves for a moment, no matter what it looks like in the culture around us, uh, that the word of God is our authority and we should be invested in its truths. So this is all for Christ Jesus and his glory. And uh, again, thank you for allowing me to be with you today. A lot can be said for this past year. Uh, everywhere I go, it seems if I make the mistake of overhearing a conversation, of course. Uh, it's either about the election last year or COVID in the past year, and that kind of just becomes cyclical. And from a pastor's perspective, it's been almost a year beginning sermons while addressing people who aren't with us, but who have to be online. And that's not untrue as far as things are bad right now. It's a real statement. But I just want to remind you, um, March of 2020 was not our first month on a fallen rock uh, plagued by the sin of man. Things are ultimately bad here, where we are. And this is really why our joy cannot ultimately be tied to this place. Christ's followers are commanded by their Savior and Lord to fix their eyes on heavenly places and on heavenly things. And it's not easy with the amount of distractions and temptations of the flesh that we encounter every day. Lord knows. But let us be encouraged by the reading of God's word this morning and the truth that it entails and the kind church fellowship that's surrounding you that by the grace of God, we will continue to run the race that Christ started in us and that is still before us until his return. We don't have to say things are bad right now and just stay there because things are ultimately victorious in Christ Jesus. So for those who are in Christ, the end has been written by our Savior King and it is good. And if you are not in Christ Jesus, if you have not submitted to him as Lord and Savior uh, of your life, I'm just praying right now that your ears are open to the truth, and I encourage you to continue listening to this passage. So let's be re begin this morning by reading our passage in a sermon titled, uh, The Final Judgment and the Response of the Righteous. Uh, Matthew 25, uh, beginning in verse 31 on to verse 46. May God always honor the reading of his word. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In verse 35, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now we can't cover all things final judgment today. And I want to direct you to the Baptist Faith and Message at Article 10, and you'll get a good synopsis of sort of what we're going over in part today. But again, there is so much that is to be discussed and approached in depth when discussing Christ's second coming and different theories and different interpretations. And so I just want to start by saying, email Cody and Justin with any question you have about that. The harder, the better. They would love to spend time with you talking about it. Today is not an eschatological position, but definition of Christ's promises. This is where I want your heads and their implications on us. What are Christ's promises for what awaits us? What's going to happen? And how does that affect us and our mission here for 80 plus years, God willing? One day at a time with eternity in mind. That is how we are supposed to approach the word of God and the mission. So here's the big idea of this passage, okay? Until Jesus returns to establish the justice of God, we show our love for him by living for him, of course, and loving our neighbor more than we love ourselves. Those two greatest commandments wrapped up in what we await in that time. So looking back even in chapter 24 for some basic Bible teaching on the final judgment, we see something really quick that every pair of eyes will witness this event. Every pair of eyes will witness Christ coming and this final judgment. It will really happen and no one will miss it. This is not metaphorical. This is prophecy that will be fulfilled. This is one of those doctrines, by the way, that is often maligned. How could someone possibly believe something like that is going to happen or that God would allow something so hard or harsh? How could we really believe that would exist? Well, friends, in light of what happened on September 11, 2001, in light of what happened at Columbine, the cultural genocide of the people in Xinjiang, in light of what happened under Mao and under Stalin and under Lenin and under Hitler, it's not a question of whether it is right for there to be a judgment day. That's an obvious yes. The question is this. If there were no judgment day, God could not be right because there is undeniable evil in this world that has not met a final accounting in the world we live. He is so holy that God cannot let evil stand. That, that's actually the premise of the very gospel. 
The mere fact that, not mere, but powerful, but simple to understand that Jesus had to pay our sin debt. The very essence of the gospel is wrapped in God's inability because of who he is, where he can't do anything that contradicts who he is. He's that perfect, he's that holy, he's that righteous, that he could not let evil stand, that for God to save our lives, he has to see Jesus because we are dead in our trespasses and sins under our father Adam. So this is our father's world and is his determination that his justice and righteousness and judgment, judgment will be vindicated. And I want you to remember that word, vindicated. You're going to see it a lot throughout this passage. That will happen. Make no mistake, the doctrine of final judgment, it's not peripheral. It's not secondary. This is not some secondary thing we can forget about. This is actually part of the eternal perspective we as believers are supposed to have as we wake up, as we go to sleep. And for too long, it has been treated like some sort of harsh addendum that can be happily expunged from the Christian scriptures. And that's just not the case, brothers and sisters. It's not a myth. It's not folklore. It's written. And he, he makes this clear, if you'll allow me, just real quick, a few verses in that Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Uh, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, it says the sun will be darkened. It says the moon will be um, will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then it says the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to another. The second coming, the final judgment, what Jesus is pointing to here in Matthew 25, it's not just rarely mentioned by him. He talked about this more than he talked about anything else. This was important to Jesus and attached to his repetition. A good rule when reading the Bible is if Jesus is repeating it, hold tight to it. And in this passage, you're hearing the words, get ready. And that, that's really what should be in our teaching and our preaching and our sharing of the gospel with other people is the son of man is coming again. The last days are coming. A reflection of his return really should be attached to the fuel tank of our mission to win souls for Christ Jesus through the proclamation of a saving gospel church. The fear from those who don't know Christ and from those who thought they did they will feel utter pain and loneliness when the skies darken that day. It's that serious. We've been tasked with the responsibility for a better understanding of the scripture that should move, that should correlate into a rescue of the perishing, really to continue to put others before ourselves. So, moving into the text, why is he returning? Why does he have to come again? And why is this so important in our lives as Christ followers? So, a key point there, Jesus will return to establish the justice of God. We've heard it said, God is love, but that's not all he is. He is holy, and he is just, and he is gracious, and he is merciful. But there are be, to be two parts played at the final judgment. God will be the judge, and humanity will be the judged. God will be the judge, and humanity will be the judged. Uh, throughout Scripture, the words that are used of God's final judgment are words like wrath 
indignation, anger, fury. These are not words, by the way, describing an out-of-control, reckless deity. They are words describing the appropriate response of a righteous God when he sees or meets injustice, evil, and wickedness. Think about ourselves for a second. Think about when we hear on the news about an unjust killing. How quick are we to say, you know, I hope they give that guy a second chance. You know, I, I hope that I've seen that unjust killing. What a terrible thing to have happened. I hope he gets away with it scot-free. No, our default setting of our hearts is to have this visceral reaction of really indignation and anger. And that is the same language that the scriptures are using to describe God's wrath on the unrighteous in that final day. It's, it's courtroom language. It's, it's the anger of the righteous judge against all wickedness and evil. And so judgment will demonstrate and finally vindicate the perfect justice of God. So that is the judge. Now who will be the judge? While there might be a company of angels present with him, the judge is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who is going to be the judge. And that is why it is so striking that Jesus here identifies himself as the judge. If you look at Matthew 25, 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes, he will sit on the glorious throne and he will separate them from one another. And what Jesus is saying here is, I'm the one who is going to judge the nations. You could not find a clearer testimony, by the way, to the claims of Jesus to his own deity than that. He is saying, disciples, understand this. The man you follow, the Son of God, I will judge the world. I am God the King. See how that could be considered a brass controversial statement uh, in, in the ears of the Pharisees? And I love this phrase, and, and by love, I do mean that sarcastically. I have to preface that. Only God can judge me. And people often sort of throw that word around or phrase around as a take that to people they feel have made a cruel assumption or a criticism in their lives. Well, you can't say anything about my behavior because only God can judge me. And I just want to give you a word of warning. That really is a weird sentence to brag about. Only God can judge me should really terrify someone who would much rather have tens of thousands of human beings judge them every second of the day than one single sitting in front of the eternal God. And that is who we will be. We will be this people who will be judged. Matthew 8:29 actually indicates that it's not just humans, but fallen angels at this time who fell with Satan in the beginning. They will too be judged. But we have to understand as human beings, not angels, that whoever lived will together appear before the great white throne of judgment. And we read in the Bible that the dead, the great, the small will all appear and no one is excluded. The wicked and the righteous, the great and the small, the quick and the dead will all appear before the judgment throne of God. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 25, 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. So what is Jesus going to do? How is he going to judge? Jesus, the son of man, will separate us into sheeps and goats. Sheep and goats. Matthew 25, 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on this right 
but the goats on his left. Uh, I was reading the other day, just trying to find some parallelisms here, and it's, it seems that the reason why a shepherd separated the sheep from the goats is because the goats were a bit bolder, and they would often leave the flock. And it wasn't so bad because they were goats and they could survive a bit more than sheep. Sheep needed the shepherd more and heard the voice of the shepherd and needed to be around the shepherd to survive. But the goats being bolder would lead a lot of sheep with them. Like they would leave the circle. They would leave the safety and sheep would follow the goats. So in this, you have this separation noticed at judgment of those who are following Christ and those who have not trusted in him. And then there's the sentencing of either eternity with Jesus or eternity apart from Jesus. But one thing we often don't think about when we think of the final judgment is that there will be a revelation. We're told over and over in scripture that every deed which a man has performed, every word he has spoken, every thought that he has conceived, every ambition that he has cherished, every motive that has prompted him to action or to inaction will be laid bare. And some of us are thinking we're holding pretty tight to private sin that no one knows about. And upon death, you have gotten away with that confession or that lack of. And the Bible says otherwise, that at one time in your life, either here or in the next, everything, every ambition, every motive, every private sin, that is the real depiction of who you are. Who you are as a person is who you are when no one is looking And that is exactly the criteria of God's judgment. Jesus is saying to you, understand that the thoughts, the motives, the intentions, the desires, all of that's going to be opened up. There will be no possibility, by the way, of a mistake occurring in the final judgment. I don't know if any of you have been a part of prison ministry, but I find in prison ministry uh, that you'll see 99.9% of the people in these prisons are innocent. At least that's what they say. You know, they're that one case where justice was miscarried, absolutely, but it's 99.9% of them are pleading that they've done nothing wrong and don't deserve to be there. But after this judgment is over, when the heart has been opened before the world, no one, absolutely no one, will be able to make that claim. That's the first thing you need to understand. Jesus is saying this so that you will understand that God's justice is gonna be openly seen It's going to be absolutely fair so that even those who hate the judgment that he delivers are going to say, yes, you are right. The judge was right. However, as believers of Christ, our own hearts are uncovered on that last day and it will all be to the praise of his glorious grace. Even even should your sin be shown to the world, it will show God's grace because there is no sin too big for the grace of God. And and you will revel in that greatness of his grace to you despite your sin. We sure like saying, you know, God, in my weakness you are strong and we end our prayers that way. But when we try to live it out, how does that go? How fast are we wanting control of those things? Even our sin at this time is going to scream of our need for him because he is going to vindicate us. Why is this good news for Christ followers? Because come this time, if your faith is resting in Christ Jesus, God's people will be vindicated. It says in Matthew 25, 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you 
from the foundation of the world. Believers often come to me asking about what the judgment day will be like for them and there's always trepidation in their voice. They tremble a little bit to think about the judgment day. And it will indeed be a day of trembling, but understand that even for the believer, it will primarily be a day of vindication. Vindication of the believer, but also vindication of Jesus and vindication of God. What do I mean by that? Well, vindication of us, because God's justice will be vindicated. There will be nobody that will be able to stand up and say, you are not just in my case. You have been unfair to me. You don't have all the details of the case. You are talking to the Lord who is perfect and all-knowing. So God's justice will be universally vindicated, but then also Christ will be vindicated. Don't forget what he endured. All those who heaped aspersions on him, all those who denied and mocked him will see him vindicated before the whole world. His sheep will be vindicated, yes. The truth should be heavy in our hearts that Jesus will be vindicated, that he is right, should Make, uh, make us grab his word and cling tighter to it. Why? Because those who did not trust in the Lord will be cursed. This is the part that can be tempting to skip over. It says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's in Matthew 25, 41. And oftentimes you might have a conversation about what's called annihilationism. And it's the mentality or the thought process that maybe hell isn't eternal. That maybe because God's so gracious that it's not forever. It's just for a period of time. And then, he'll be, then they'll be swallowed up and sort of there'll be a ceasing to their existence. The problem with that is the word eternal is used so very often in this passage. Hell will be destroyed, but the nature of the soul is eternal. And in this passage, we see the word eternal over and over and over again. And, and I, I don't want that to put us into a spiral of sadness. I want it to encourage us to share the gospel with everyone we can. We will be judged according to our lives here on earth. I want to be clear about something. You will not be judged solely by whether or not you were a nice person who did good things. All right, it's okay. Many of you are nice people. It's, it's okay, it's good to be nice. Um, I just gotta tell you, naturally cranky people don't trust naturally nice people. It's, it's something we're working on as a whole at our meetings. But the bottom line here is, um, keep it going. Nice is good, but you need to know this. Uh, the point of being nice is for the glory of God. So if you're nice apart from Christ, that will also lead to being cursed. Because our works don't, save us. The, the gospel, the power of the gospel, what faith means, what faith is, is wrapped all in this passage as we just sort of walk through what judgment means and who the judge is and who we are. We can talk about those details all day long, but do you know that the essence of the gospel is when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, I mean lifeless, I mean lifted the hand and the hand dropped, that Jesus infused new life into us through the power of his resurrection. The gospel is not this situation where, you know what, I'm spiritually weak right now. I know people who have come to church for a matter of four to five weeks because their marriage was really bad, and when the marriage started looking good again, they stopped coming. It's not this, thanks for the uh, hand, God, thanks for the extra help. It's not that you're spiritually overweight, and we just had to shed a few pounds of the evil, we just had to stop doing what we were doing. 
The gospel is that we were spiritually dead. No pulse. I've sometimes heard salvation described like, well, you know, I was drowning in the sea and then Jesus came along in a boat and he threw me a lifeline. Here's the real illustration. We were face down in the water. Salvation does not make a good person better. It makes a dead man come alive. This is the true gospel. This is why we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It teaches us that God saves you through the gospel and blesses you as a free gift of unmerited grace. And then what does this final judgment point to? He gives you the faith and then he rewards you for the faith that he has given you. You want to know your part in it? You sinned. The good works don't get us there. You'll hear other types of faiths and denominations or preaching that says do this 10 times and you'll be fine or 10 steps to being a better Christian. This is about being transformed by the power of God, submitting your life to him. And then all of those fruits, all of those works, the things that God is going to judge, that Christ is going to see to describe whether or not you are a sheep or a goat, that is all evidence that you have been saved. It's not rungs on the ladder to salvation. One remarkable detail from the passage, uh, let's look again at it, Matthew 25, 35 through 40. Jesus is saying that at the end of time, judgment will be based on how you treated his followers. That's what he means by least of these. It's absolutely part of the gospel to care for the poor, to care for the widows, to care for the suffering. You see that in James 2. You see it all over the place in the epistles. Now, but what he, Jesus is talking about here is actually poor Christians, persecuted Christians, suffering Christians. He's saying what you did for them, what you did, uh, what you gave to them, that, that is like giving to me or doing to me. You can see how perplexed the party is who's talking to Jesus in Matthew 25. He, he, he repeats, basically. He asks again. He says, no, really, I didn't see you. I saw no one that looked like Jesus. I did everything I could for you, but your followers, not so much. And Jesus is, again, sort of identifying with his people. And I feel like that is also pointing to the hypostatic union, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He can identify with us. He's done everything we've done in the sense that he's experienced those things. He just did it perfectly. When the apostle Paul was persecuting Christians in Jerusalem and went up to Damascus to continue doing that persecution, what happened? Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. What did Jesus say? Saul, Saul. What did he say? Why are you persecuting my people? No, that's not what Jesus said. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus is saying in the end, the judgment is going to be according to whether you blessed or cursed his body, his family, his people, the people for whom he died. This is not a passage about salvation by works, although it does make it clear that you have to do more than simply say that you love and trust Jesus. This is where it gets personal. There is a life that goes along with your profession of faith. Let me say that again. There is a life that goes along with your profession of faith in Christ as evidence there has been a spiritual work. That's another reason why Jesus says that the heart will be opened up. Not your agenda, not your giving statement, not your attendance record, your heart your heart will be opened up and laid bare. 
On the last day, there will be nobody who is a hypocrite who has been saying he loves God. Nobody. But it is in fact living as if he does not, who is going to slide under the bar, under the door of the heavenly kingdom. That's not going to happen. Because our, our hearts will be opened up and what we really believe will be shown. In other words, come this day, mentioned in Matthew 25, you will no longer be able to fake your Christianity. There's a shelf life on that. There's an expiration date on how well we can pretend to be something that we are not. I say that for your good. I say that for my good. This leads us to one of the most sobering points in the entire process. One that really hits home. The passage shows us that not everyone who considers themselves a Christian will go to heaven. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 really sort of brings this into context. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? By the way, when he says that, these are the same people who are saying, I didn't see you. I, I, was, I would have absolutely clothed you. When were you in prison? Same people. And this is what Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Imagine hearing that and thinking you love Jesus. Imagine hearing that and thinking you know him. I remember being uh, in seminary the last year before we graduated, and there was a guy who was going to be a missionary in Afghanistan. He sort of, we were in the New Testament class, and he sort of raised his hand and, and said, hey, I would love some prayer in a couple months. Me and my wife and our small child were moving to Afghanistan to be a really under-the-radar sort of church planter in that sense. Obviously, he's going for other reasons as well. And I remember speaking to him after class because the jobs where I, were, I was being interviewed were currently at that time in Buffalo, San Diego, and Amelia Island. And I was thinking, wow, this, this has limits on my end. And this guy's saying Afghanistan. So you get a little guilty, like maybe this guy just is the real deal. And I'm just, what am I even doing? So I go up to him. We're having a conversation about where God's moving us. And uh, I said, yeah, I got to tell you, man, I really respect you. That's, that's a dangerous place to go and to, to be that you know, dedicated to the call of the gospel. Wow, that's incredible. And he goes, and where are you thinking? I was like, well, I, I'm actually really interested in this church uh, in northeast Florida, and I think we had graduated at the time we were having this conversation, and I said, so I'm, you know, really interested in it, and, and he goes, wow, that's uh, right there in the midst of the Bible Belt, and we sort of joked about that because we both know that the Bible Belt is just the Bible Belt by name, that the amount of churches around doesn't necessarily exemplify how many people are following or chasing Christ Jesus, and, and we were talking about that, and he said, you know, I wouldn't be that envious of where I'm going. And I go, well, I'm certainly not. It's a very dangerous place in one sense. And he goes, no, no, I know what you mean. He goes, when I have a conversation with someone where an area where the gospel is nowhere to be found, it's going to be a pretty quick yes or no. It's going to be pretty authentic. They're going to know whether or not they want to follow Jesus because there's going to be this cost attached. He goes, you're going somewhere where everyone believes they're saved because they walked an aisle, repeated a prayer, but they won't look like it at all with their lives. And that just struck me thinking, that seems pretty difficult in its own right. Now, obviously, this isn't competitive. The gospel needs to go to all nations, including this one. But it draws something, a truth out of here that we're not so worried about atheism in the Bible Belt. We're worried about apathy or indifference. 
We've, ne- we've never had to beg anyone to commit to something that they love doing. Our lives, what Jesus is going to evaluate that coming day, that will point to the sentence that we carry out. And, and the evidence of a real heart transformation or not, and Christ will keep his promise and carry it out, all of that will be revealed. What is a sermon on the final judgment is ahead, or what is the importance of a passage like this? If, if believe and confess he is Lord, repent of your sins and submit your life to him while you can, is not the main essence of our passage today. Get it right. Get it right by submitting to the Christ who finished it. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There was a Scottish pastor uh, by the name of Robert Murray Machane, uh, fed up by what is now referred to as cultural Christianity. He actually said this on the heels of trying to raise money for a really important mission, international mission, and then fell short of his goal. So if you can imagine one of us yelling at you because we fell short of the Lottie Moon goal, uh, maybe he got by with it because he's in a, he has a Scottish accent and we just need to start applying that or trying that here uh, because our southern accents aren't working very well or whatever Justin has. Uh, but right now, this is what he is saying in this passage. This is what he's saying in this quote after sort of being outraged this church is not caring about international missions. He says this, I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in the great day. I fear there are many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. He said, oh my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly. For I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. Harsh words that reveal the heart of what we're chasing. For those of you who may not know, cultural Christianity is a mindset that places one's security in heritage, values, rites of passage. It's a generic deity worship rather than the redemptive work of Christ Jesus. This is what John was referring to when he described a lukewarm people. Lukewarm Christians are Christians who sit in churches, believe the message, but are not really sold out to Jesus and not meaningfully engaged in the mission. Revelation 3, 15 through 16, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that, you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is describing the same kind of Christians in Matthew 25 when he discusses the three parables. They consider themselves Christians, but they don't live in a way anticipating the master's return. Is that in our heads? That there is so much of the Bible dedicated to a group of people who think they are good with God, but aren't? Like the maidens in Matthew 25, they consider themselves Christians, but what? They don't live as though they are going to give an account to him. They're only thinking about how to make things comfortable in the present moment. There's nowhere in the Bible that says God or Jesus is concerned with your comfort. He is concerned with your good and his glory. That's what he's concerned with. 
Like the wicked servant in Matthew 25, they have never considered why God gave them the talents and treasures and time that he did and invested that for the kingdom. A cultural Christian will tell you where he goes to church. A believing of the Bible Christian, a Christ follower, will tell you where they serve. And like the goats, they are not meaningfully engaged in what the shepherd is doing or leveraging their resources to care for the poor or extend the mission of God. What bothered me this whole week as I read through these parables is that there is no middle ground and the final judgment sort of pronounces that for us. It's two categories. You're either a sheep or a goat. You're either committed to the mission, all in for Jesus, using your resources for the kingdom, or you are not. You are either praised, rewarded, for your commitment and welcomed into the kingdom or you are condemned and left out of it. No middle ground. And that puts the lukewarm Christian in a very precarious position. Why? Because lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. I just want to encourage you with a few things. It isn't about what our mouth says. It is about what our life says. So what will be the response of those made righteous? If we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've repented of our sin, we are chasing him with our lives, submitting to him as our authority, we must be actively and sacrificially engaged in the mission. 1 John three twenty three. this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us to do. A church that refuses to call people to die to themselves and follow Christ is going to be full of people who admire and are cool or good with Jesus as long as he doesn't interfere with my life. I can't help but wonder if didn't I ask Jesus into my heart will be one of the pleas of the religious when they stand before the Lord. We are saved by justification of faith and faith alone in only Christ and his power. Nothing else. No one else. You see, this is supposed to be shown in our lives. So when this day comes, we will be ready. I remember a time when this really, really woke me up. And I was working at a garage in Louisville, Kentucky, attending seminary and getting about five hours of sleep and studying Hebrew and Greek and being newly married. And it was just, I mean, it was a really rewarding time, but it was difficult for sure. And I'd get about 35 minutes every shift at Valvoline Instant Oil Change, which that might encourage you not to take your cars there if people like me work there. Uh, But the bottom line is I got about 35 minutes for a lunch break, and I just coveted this lunch break. I idolized this lunch break, especially in the middle of July working under hot cars. I was really about where I was going to go to lunch. So I would go to eat at this place called Penn Stations, this little sub shop down the street. I'd walk in. I'd grab my sub. Man, it was nice, hot, fresh. I'd pull out my big giant diet Mountain Dew and I would just go to town just alone without saying anything, without talking to anyone, just staring at the wall, coveting that time, finding that rest. Not time with the Lord, time with that sandwich. And I remember there was one time where this skinny guy, about 21, 22 years old, he walks in, he's in this blue hoodie and he is just loud and he is kind, but he is obnoxious. And he is everywhere in that place. He must have said hi to every employee in that place. And, and it was an empty joint at this time. 
it's like two o'clock. And I remember he could have sat anywhere in the entire restaurant and he sits right across from me within talking distance. And he just starts yapping at me. He just starts taking my ears off with everything that he has experienced. That, man, my dad's going through this right now. And hey, how are you, man? You look familiar. Do I know you? You look a lot like this guy I know. I mean, just it, it's going back and forth between small talk and serious weighty matters that require far more attention. He sees that I'm eating this sandwich. He knows that I have no time for him right now, yet he keeps going. And I'm looking at my clock. I go, man, I only have 10 minutes left to enjoy this break. I only have nine minutes left to enjoy this break. I only have eight minutes left to enjoy this break. I maybe haven't said five words to this guy in a matter of 30 minutes, and he is still not getting the point. Well, at the end, I think hopefully maybe he got it. He walks away, and on his way out, he goes, man, just want to let you know, thanks for, thanks for talking to me. I really appreciate our time today. You have a great one. I mean, she could not have been nicer. He walks out, and I just breathe a sigh of relief, like, praise God, I get five more minutes, and I'm not two seconds into eating my sandwich when I'm overcome with just this amount of guilt and pain. How audacious. Here I am, a seminary student, going to become a pastor so that I can pastor people, share the gospel with them. And I have traded this dude's soul in for a sandwich. The most important thing for me that moment was to experience my comfort and my convenience while God had dropped an opportunity in my lap to share the message of Christ with someone. And I remember thinking to myself, of course you passionately make all of these hyperbolic promises. I'll never let this happen again. This is never gonna happen. And, and those of you who may know my obsessive compulsive nature, I did spend the next two and a half weeks going back to that place at the same time every day, whether I was working or not, hoping to God, praying to God on my knees with conviction next to my wife at the house, praying for this man, Lord, put them back in my path. Please give me another chance to make a difference. And this is not one of those stories that gets all mystic and weird at the end and says, man, I hit him with my car and I took him to the hospital and saved his life. That's not what happened at all. This is a matter of I never saw the guy again. I know God's sovereign over the situation. I know that that he is in safe hands with someone else possibly who's going to be able to share the gospel with him. But I wish it could have been me. And it, and it rang true as well as I hope it rings true for you in this passage that Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the means and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He is our savior, Lord, and judge. And if you are wanting to be synonymous with Jesus, to be connected with Jesus for something, then Jesus isn't your God. That something is. He, even heaven itself can be an idol if the most exciting thing about being there isn't Christ himself. Dustin Binge said, it isn't the fear of judgment that saves you. It is knowing Jesus that saves you. So what are we to do? What are we to leave here with this morning? We are to bear witness to this truth. We must be humbled by this truth. Church, there's a power in realizing we didn't do a thing to earn God's grace, yet he, according to Ephesians 1, lavishes it upon us. He did so by his incarnation, by his crucifixion, by his resurrection. And then when he returns to vindicate his children, no eye will miss it. You see, we leave today with a mission. 
with a weight as ambassadors of a Christ Jesus who is coming. Are we ready? Are, is our family ready? Are our neighbors ready? When someone crosses your path, are you ready to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with that person? Because you know the name of hope, and they may not know the name of hope. You have the solution to save. Are you holding too tightly to it, or are you sharing it? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are but messengers, but with that comes the power of a holy God, Greg Abels. Are we walking in lowly humility, knowing who we are before our God? In light of this final day, are we boasting in a victory over an argument, rather than living gripped by the reality of heaven and hell? Because we have no merit of our own, but the merit of him who lived in perfect obedience to the law and who died for those who have broken the law. You see, this passage, the retribution of truth in the final judgment, in those days, should stir us to discipleship and evangelism. Devastating days await men who do not lead or live for the kingdom of God now, but brag to their buddies about how good they are with God without obeying any of their commands. He is the God of the unseen and the seen. You can't fool him. You can't trick him. All things will be laid bare and revealed. There are people all around us who have yet to come to Christ, who are outside of the kingdom of God. And, and right now, as we talk, as we sit here, as we gather, as we go out to lunch, are under his wrath. They just don't even know it. The experience of God's redeeming love is restricted exclusively for those who are inside the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are outside of Christ are in a fearful place. And here's the point. It is incumbent upon each and every single one of us to go into the world and entreat the unconverted to come to the salvation that has already been prepared for them by Christ. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. Church, there is such good news in the gospel it's a rescue mission. We, we are kept and held. We persevere by the strength of these arms that hold us. And in that, if that's true for you, our faith needs to be one of action. I pray it's true. I pray if you don't know Christ, if this is the first time the gospel has ever gripped you, that you're hearing it, that you surrender to him, that you tell somebody, you move forward in him and in his truths so that when this day comes, you can hear the words, welcome, my good and faithful servant. He's the only hope we have. Let's pray. Father God, I'm grateful for your goodness. I'm grateful for your mercy. Father, I'd have you no other way than who you are because you are perfect. Father, may our hearts not be with our idols, May fathers, may husbands wake up, lead their families in this victory that only Christ can bring. As we don't live for a temporal rock, we live with an eternal perspective of the things to come. Father, may we remember how serious Jesus is about these days because his desire is for all men and women to be saved. That's what he wants and he wants us bring the message forward. He is the power to save. Father God, you 
You are the power to save. You are the gospel. We bring it forward as good news, but Father, work in us because we have no power of our own. You are the strength we need. You are the truth we need. You are the wisdom we need. We need not only our churches invaded by this, we need our families invaded by this. Father, may we never forget the mission because there is too much at stake. It is in Christ's name we pray, amen.